Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Time studio, joined today by Beppe Pizzulli, who is a polymath, uh, author, uh, general counsel, uh, man about town, uh, very seriously, has done a lot of work internationally, um, cross-border in the capital markets, wrote a very interesting book uh, called Lazar Brexit, uh, has written a few interesting uh, legal articles, just those that I've seen uh, about English common law and how that's going to uh, be helpful to the English and the, and the world structure as we go forward uh, with, with further globalization in a different structure. So welcome to the show, Beppe. Glad to have you here. Delighted to be here, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we'll kick right off. It's uh, uh, October 10th, 2021, and we've had no shortage of things to talk about uh, in the world. Uh, I've been covering a little bit the insanity of the lockdown uh, uh, fascism in Victoria in Australia and also some of the related madness here in the U.S., uh, but for our American listeners who haven't paid as much attention to continental Europe, uh, can you give us a sense of kind of what the riots in the streets about Green Pass in Italy are about? Uh, of course, Chris, be happy to do uh, so. So Italy has been heavily hit by the COVID pandemics. Uh, clearly, no one really knew how to grapple with the issue. Uh, however, what happens is uh, when uh, an emergency hits, you may be sure that the government will jump uh, at the opportunity to reduce uh, individual freedoms with all sorts of new regulation. Uh, some of uh, the totalitarian movements uh, of Europe of the 19th 20th century started with health emergencies or um, uh, pandemics. So what happened in Italy was that first, uh, the country was uh, locked up for a very long time and it was a very strict regime. Basically, you couldn't uh, walk uh, around. And then after uh, a large scale uh, vaccination campaign, the government has introduced uh, papers right, to allow people to uh, walk around freely in the streets, get back to work or even frequent uh, public houses and restaurants. Mm. Now, the thinking goes, uh, most people believe in science and hence uh, see the value uh, of uh, mass scale vaccination. At the same time, uh, most people are uh, rightfully concerned about the growing influence uh, of the government in the limitation of personal freedom. So there are widespread protests against uh, this paper called the Green Pass, mm. uh, lacking which you, basically your constitutional rights and freedoms are, are restricted. Now, a lot of people see this as a very uh, academic uh, legal issue, and uh, I disagree. Uh, I mean, constitutional freedoms are very important and they really go to the core, what kind of society and what kind of government we do want for ourselves. Mm. So restricting, uh, personal freedoms is always a very tricky uh, balancing act between social security and personal freedom. And it's very difficult to draw the line. I believe that basically promoting uh, vaccination throughout the country is a sensible policy, which should be uh, encouraged because it's based, based on sound scientific evidence. At the same time, uh, enforcing a green pass, i.e. a document that uh, is necessary to carry out business or uh, socializing 
is too reminiscent of fascist and communist precedents, uh, the scars of which uh, are still on the face of Europe. Right. Well, that it make it makes absolute sense. We're seeing variable sorts of application of that kind of fascist mentality in in the U.S. It's luckily state by state. Uh, New York City is insane. They have dictated that if you don't show proof of vaccination, you can't walk into a restaurant. Um, there are a lot. Of, we had a, a couple of registered nurses on the show a little while ago, and I don't know about the Italian context, but in the U.S. The Biden government is so insane that what we should all care about is herd immunity, right? If everyone has the antibodies to the virus, that's what matters. Whether you got it from the vaccine or whether you had the antibodies because you got COVID and survived. But here, even doctors and nurses who have been on the front lines getting COVID years, you know, a year and a half ago and have the antibodies and therefore don't need the vaccine are being fired from their jobs uh, for no scientific reason, right? You've got, the, you've got the antibodies. Why do you need the vaccine? You don't. So we're having issues here and, and even potentially more clearly, it's about fascist government control and nothing to do with public health. So uh, is, is that the similar situation in Italy or are they testing people for antibodies and then demanding you have the green pass? Or is it the same that you just have to take the vaccine no matter what? No, there's no, well, fortunately, the Italian constitution prohibits uh, uh, compelling uh, health treatment. So people can't really be forced uh, to, uh, to do the vaccine unless uh, parliament basically introduces a law uh, to, to compel it. Right. The problem is that the Green Pass is being used as a nudge uh, to promote widespread vaccination. So unless you do have the Green Pass, uh, a lot of uh, individual freedoms and business freedoms are, are severely restricted. Now, while this is a problem, in my uh, opinion, this is a problem because the Green Pass doesn't show immunity. You still need to take uh, either a lateral flow test or a PCR test via a swab mm. to demonstrate that you are uh, virus free. So uh, clearly, I do understand uh, being uh, a moderate voice, uh, the needs to protect uh, social security and public health. I do understand that. However, there's the right way and the wrong way to do it. The right way is show me your immunity. So either bring together your blood test that shows me that you have been hit by COVID and have developed antibodies, or uh, do uh, a lateral photo PCR test, the swab, so-called the swab, uh, so that I can um, verify uh, your, your, your health uh, status. The Green Pass uh, doesn't accomplish this. No. So it's basically a way to promote a policy that uh, politics is incapable of pushing forward because of widespread opposition uh, in the public opinion. And it's a way to reduce uh, individual and uh, mass freedoms to enforce an ideological agenda. Right. So from this point of view, I believe this is not too different from what is taking place in the United States. There's a global left that's enforcing a, a global agenda 
and uh, ideology is cross-border and is spilling over here and there. Too true. Uh, we, we try to do our best to highlight uh, the eruptions of leftist insanity as they appear here uh, in the US. Um, what I found interesting about the interruption, interesting is a bad word, about the interruption that this virus has caused in the last 18, 19 months, is that all of those, all the processes that were leading um, uh, uh, from Brexit, right, both how the United Kingdom will deal with Europe and the rest of the world, how um, things change or, or do not have to change in commercial relationships. I'm, I'm most curious because you spent a lot of time on this uh, and have, have been a, a gather, a fairly strong proponent that Brexit made sense and that good things can come out of that. Um, maybe we should touch on that a little bit. I mean, what, what, having now seen it going on for the last few years, both the vote and all the politics and then the process of, of actual Brexit, what are you seeing as the best developments, both kind of for the continent and the UK? Uh, and have there been any problems that you did not foresee that are you know, turning out to be a real issue? Not really, to be honest uh, with you. Uh, as you said, I've been a, a vocal proponent uh, of Brexit. And I think that Brexit is good for uh, the United Kingdom. Now, I'm not sure that um, exit from the European Union is a viable alternative for other countries. But from the point of view of the United Kingdom, I think it made a lot of sense for a number of reasons. The first one, some of uh, the competitive advantages that the United Kingdom uh, was capable of building over uh, about a thousand years were being eroded uh, by continued membership in the European Union. One example is the English common law, uh, which for 40 years had to endure contamination from European Union law, uh, thereby uh, harming uh, the competitive advantage of the city of London vis-a-vis -vis the global capital markets. Now, uh, having the power and the possibility to uh, trade freely in a free trade area of 450 mi uh, million consumers offset some of the damages that contamination uh, brought about against common law. Mm. But uh, once Brexit uh, is done, uh, uh, in any the EU law uh, needs to be cleansed to restore uh, the unique features of, of the English common law. Second, uh, Brexit uh, uh, does much clarity. Uh, continental Europe now is a social, democratic uh, bloc mm. governed by the Napoleon Code with an extended uh, welfare network. All of this uh, doesn't fly well with the economy uh, of the United Kingdom. The economy of the United Kingdom is still based upon entrepreneurship, low tax, light touch, regulation, ambitious ambitions and opportunities for all the citizens. And the United Kingdom proves that freedom and prosperity are grounded in international trade rather than regulatory convergence. Hmm. Third, um, the European Union is becoming a Eurasian bloc. Germany, uh, the dominant country in the 27 nation bloc, has pursued for most of its uh, history Ostpolitik, i.e., uh, eastward expansion. Why? 
Well, you know, uh, Europe westward ends with the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> so uh, German technology needs uh, to expand uh, eastward in order to maintain uh, its mercantile uh, tilt and in order to uh, fuse uh, their technology uh, with their uh, massive need for commodities. Mm. Now, uh, th this could actually be an alternative for some of the European countries, but certainly in the global uh, competition, which I have nicknamed the new G2 or Cold War II between the United States and China, mm. siding up with rogue countries such as China, Russia, or even Iran, which is uh, one of the largest trading partners of Germany, right. certainly uh, runs against everything the UK has been standing for since 1066 with the invasion of Norman the Conqueror. So expecting uh, the United Kingdom to take side with Berlin in the global competition against uh, autocracies, I think would be a stretch and would be repugnant uh, to most uh, of the country. So for these and other reasons, I've been a vocal proponent of Brexit. And I believe that uh, uh, international trade, free market economy, enterprising, thrift, self-reliance, and national sovereignty are uh, the ingredients to guarantee the British people prosperity and freedom. Thank you. That's perfectly well put. And I think a lot of our listeners um, will recognize those arguments and, and, and wish that they had put it so clearly. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Now, in terms of... Well, they are clear, not because they are my thoughts, but because I follow in the footsteps of Lady Thatcher, who, and I believe that more sound Thatcherite policies are the right answer to uh, these uh, global crises. Oh, I, I entirely agree. You were preaching to the choir when it comes to low tax, low regulatory touch, increased freedom, uh, and the ability, you know, in, in the States here especially, having grown up in Silicon Valley on Wall Street, we call it the freedom to fail, right? You, oh. you start a company, you try really hard. Some of them work, some of them don't, but you learn a lot. Uh, and everyone that becomes a big business success in the US has at least one or two signal failures and it taught them how to succeed. So um, is there, as curious you say that about, the, the UK has always been a bit separate um, from the continent in terms of both the common market and then the, the EU itself. Is there that opportunity? Is there, is there that chance for a Thatcherite revolution at all in, say, Italy? Someone finally going to say, the young are underemployed and overeducated. This sclerotic state is not bringing us prosperity. Is there any appetite for that kind of thinking in Italy or one of the other sort of larger states, not Germany? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, Italy is uh, somewhat unique. First, you still have. Uh, you, you see it heavily influenced by the Catholic Church. Mm. Catholic Church is a powerful force uh, to, to reckon with in Italy, and it's a blend of populism, anti-capitalist prejudice, uh, open borders policy. Uh, I mean, you know it, I, I don't need to go over uh, all of this. It, and this is still part uh, of Italian culture. Actually, it's very deeply rooted in, mm. in Italian culture. Second, for about 70 years, uh, Israel has been exposed to KGB uh, uh, psyops uh, as the weakest link in the Western uh, European bloc. Uh, oh. So communist culture uh, runs very uh, deeply inside uh, the uh, inner dynamics uh, of the Italian nation. 
and most of the media in the universities uh, do uh, sympathize with Marxist theories as declined by Italian intellectual Antonio Gra Gramsci, who uh, theorized the hegemony of uh, leftist culture. Third, the European Union uh, itself runs counter uh, Thatcherite uh, policies. With the uh, uh, fall of the Soviet Union, uh, now you do have another Leviathan uh, who's trying to uh, unify Europe under a centralized power. And this is the European Union. I mean, its uh, uh, institutional architecture is modeled after the um, Communist Party of the Soviet Union mm. with unelected bureaucrats, i.e. the nomenclature, the apparatchiki, right. um, basically running the show without uh, democratic accountability. But you also have an easy way out, you immigrate. Uh, globalization allowed talent to be uh, mobile. So the most talented young uh, Italian people uh, go to the United States, to Australia, to the United Kingdom, to New Zealand, to Canada, i.e. Uh, those five countries uh, of uh, the core of the Victorian era's Commonwealth that are based on uh, meritocracy. A pr promise uh, opportunities and freedom to everyone, regardless of race, nationality, faith, or other backgrounds. And uh, I believe if you want that, rather than starting it from scratch and uh, going against the grain in a country that culturally isn't ready uh, to do it, just you know, go to the land of the free, make your life easy. That's that's interesting. And that is, having, it's been, as an American, having worked in a few different European countries in my career, I always find it fascinating the, the, the very different viewpoint people have uh, about uh, economic activity and kind of getting the permission of the state as opposed to just building what you want and the state has nothing to do with it unless until they come tax you, which they all, all like to do. You remember um, Ronald Reagan, he said the most dangerous words you can possibly hear are, hello, I work for the government and I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I'm curious to see, you know, will there be a breaking point? Because it's not, the danger as I see it to sort of that Marxist, socialist, uh, leftist, Feeling is we have that here in the United States. You know, ninety percent of the professors in our universities are Marxist idiots. Um, but for whatever reason, the you know, a lot of a lot of people go to university, hear their communist professors babble for four years, get their degree, and go to Wall Street or Silicon Valley or go earn a living. And it's this this memory of these lefty idiots that I had to put up with for four years. It doesn't it doesn't impact them. Um, it does to some degree, hence we saw the rioting in the streets and the rise of Antifa and, and, and uh, Portland unchecked by the government, but predominantly we're still fairly a center moderate country. Um, I was thinking about kind of- that, That's changing though. That's oh, it is changing. changing. That's changing though. And how do we prevent it? Your advice having, if you looked at say Italy now, in terms of that sort of ingrained sense of, of Marxist and then Catholic church, uh, indoctrination, if that's a warning sign for where America can go, what would you suggest to today's parents to say, how do you not it's get a very, It's a very counter uh, intuitive, uh, if you wish. 
Uh, I'll explain what I mean to you uh, by reference to the United Kingdom. One of the largest constituencies of the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom is the uh, British Italian Conservatives or the Italian Tories. And you know why about 90% of Italian immigrants to the United Kingdom are Conservatives? Because they like the UK the way it is and they don't want to change it. They like the Queen, they like the pageantry, they like the tradition, they like the institutions, they like the British style of democracy, they like the square mile and the opportunities afforded and granted by the city of London, they like the imperial past, right? We don't want to change that and that makes us conservatives. Mm. So um, uh, the very tough answer here is that one of the ways to deal with this global uh, ideological offensive coming from the left, from, uh, the left is immigration. Talented, ambitious uh, immigrants who are vocal proponents of individual freedom and uh, value uh, entrepreneurship. So um, the crackdown on, of China, Hong Kong has produced 2.3 million immigrants to the United Kingdom who've been welcomed with open arms because right. they bring with them a very strong a uh, deeply rooted desire for freedom and an equally strong uh, spirit of entrepreneurship. So although uh, being soft on immigration runs counter core uh, conservative policies, I think in exceptional times as we live, it can be a very powerful weapon to use against um, group thinking uh, of uh, the Marxist time. Hmm. So uh, the, the reason why all of this is happening, I mean, uh, uh, Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev gave you the answer in 1953, when he said, uh, crisis after crisis after crisis will feed the West a spoon of socialism until they will wake up fully blown communists without even realizing it. How will they do it? Well, they will ask the government to come to the rescue. And that's exactly what's happening. Public debt, um, low rates, um, uh, public spending, uh, increase in the welfare net, all of this eventually will fundamentally alter uh, the characteristics of um, libertarian uh, societies built on free markets. Uh, once uh, this cracks in, it's going to be very difficult to reverse. And that's, that's what we're why, seeing. Right? I'm a yes. fiscal conservative, you know. Yeah. Uh, public debt is the root of all evil. Amen. We're seeing it here, and it is, it is appalling that uh, I will at least, I've had this argument with friends and colleagues, I'll at least give the left credit for when they get their opportunity, they go for it, right? Barack Obama had the first two years where he had the, the House of Representatives and the Senate, Democratic, and he had the pen. And they voted lockstep on a completely partisan fashion. Dodd-Frank, Obamacare, law after law, money after money racked up and borrowed from our grandchildren. And we're seeing it again here. Thankfully, the country's waking up a little bit more but the Biden unity government is trying to do the same thing. They're trying to jam through trillions of dollars of new, 
new spending that will go on forever, right? They're entitlements, not subject to congressional review. And at least, thank God, so far, there are two Democrat senators who are standing in the way. But the national media, 99% is for this socialist nonsense. And they're screaming about these two rational people as if they're Satan, ignoring entirely the Republicans who clearly must be evil and mean and don't want to help people, right? That's, their, that's the narrative. If, if you're for fiscal austerity and opportunity of personal growth, you must be evil because you don't want to hand out, hand out money. So um, we, we understand the right? well. The give back rhetoric. See, um, th th there's a great book uh, which I recommend uh, for reading to all uh, your audience. And this um, control uh, uh, the words, control the world. So basically, the left is winning uh, the war on semantics. I mean, basic ideas are changing meaning, you know, and they become permeated with ideological uh, nuances that alter their original meaning. So when you say equality, that sounds good, doesn't it? You know? That's great. Really, I mean, who can possibly be against equality? The problem is, is equality of opportunities. Right. Equalities on the starting blocks. It can't possibly translate into equality of bank accounts or equality of outcomes because there are a lot of uh, variables, right, uh, in the process of building uh, inequalities. So if we change the narrative into fighting injustice, clearly we'll be doing uh, a good service to, to democracy. What's injustice? Well, injustice is an unfair inequality. But there are uh, very fair and desirable inequalities. The inequality between Tom Brady and me when playing football, I mean, is evident, right? right. And so is the inequality of a hedge fund manager who bets his own money in the markets and the government that raises tax and funds. So let's fight injustice rather than fighting equality if we want to build a fair and just society. And this goes on and on, you know, on uh, basically the entire public discourse. So to the extent we let ideological left to win uh, the war on semantics, we are going to uh, lose, uh, uh, I don't use the, the word war, but the competition on politics, because politics are a competition for us. I mean, we are conservatives. We don't see political adversaries as enemies, but as competitors to them. Uh, there's a war here to be fought and won at all costs, with all means, fair or unfair. And that's a very deep uh, asymmetry that's very difficult uh, to uh, fend off. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, uh, the best example I've seen of the left's use of semantics to win for them, but, but kind of intellectually dishonestly, is there was one phrase that was created probably in the, in the 1960s. And that phrase was Holocaust denier, right? That's a very clear, simple, morally weighted description. If you're insane enough to deny the reality of Nazi Germany's murder of millions of people, that's insane. When you deny the Holocaust, that's crazy. The left took that and they've now applied that as an epithet to anyone they don't like. So you're a climate denier. Right. You're a you're, you're instead of being someone who has a range of rational arguments as to whether someone who's healthy under 35 should take a vaccine. 
you're a vaccine denier, right? They've, they've, they've taken a very powerful phrase and they've completely misused it. Now they continue to do that and it gets less and less uh, impactful. In the United States, for example, um, there's a great joke, this thing called the PC dictionary that was written. And the idea was, if you don't understand what your leftist family members are talking about over Thanksgiving dinner, this dictionary will help you. And the definition of racist in the PC dictionary was anybody who disagrees with you about anything, right? So we've seen that here and it's become a joke, right? Uh, and and, and uh, so we see that, that kind of leftist war. What I'm curious about is I see here in the United States, because I moved, as I say, I moved from New York to America. When I moved to Florida, most of the people I deal with here on a day-to-day -day basis, they don't care about what happens in Washington. Luckily, we have a fairly well-run state, no taxes, great place to live. Um, so while the left is concentrated on winning the war of words, here in the United States, their audience for that war might be 20% of the population. No one else is listening, right? So they're get, getting very excited. And I watched them completely, they didn't, none of them understood how Donald Trump could have won. Like it just seemed to them impossible. In the island of Manhattan, 92% of people vote Democrat. So if you live there, it seems utterly impossible to you that Donald Trump could have won the presidency. Is that, is kind of the opposite situation what prevails in most of continental European societies where ideas that you and I take for granted about free will, freedom of opportunity, individual responsibility, are those just have been so far pushed out of the public square that it would take a very concerted war of the words to get back? Is it even possible? It's not possible um, because uh, the issue is no longer a political issue, it's an anthropological issue. I mean, the Homo uh, Europeus has turned into someone brainwashed uh, since birth in believing that there is only one, one side to the world. And see, uh, I mean, one example of this uh, is this, uh, I find frankly unacceptable debate about uh, European strategic autonomy, or if you wish, the European army, because that would involve the rearmament of Germany. Great idea. You fought two world wars against Germany to prevent Germany, right or wrong, to um, pull up and build a fully armed uh, army again, yet people still fight, you know, the battle to break away from a long lasting alliance with the United States to uh, pursue strategic autonomy based on the uh, dominance of Germany. Hmm. So what I believe is going on here, and it's the political equivalent of the Stockholm syndrome. Once you get kidnapped, you fall in love uh, with your uh, oppressor. And um, I don't know, frankly, how to remedy this. Mm. Um, see, uh, I, I mean, in many respects, I, I, I'm an outside uh, watcher of, of this freak show. Um, one day I will pack up, go to Israel, go back to the United Kingdom, come to the United States and uh, part of the issue as far as I am personally concerned mm. will be fixed. Right. Uh, whether the uh, battle can be won uh, 
uh, in Europe? I don't think so. I think we need to steer ourselves to have uh, a socialist block mm. uh, uh, on the continent. And for the foreseeable future, I think that's going to be the society and politics that European people want. Wow. And is there, I mean, as, as you know, Thatcher so beautifully said, the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. Is there a point at which the system just collapses? Like here in the United States, so, Social Security and all the entitlements that have been built up since the socialists in a wheelchair started them and Lyndon Johnson added on, right, they're becoming untenable. A huge chunk of the federal budget is on autopilot, which first off is unconstitutional, completely illegal. It should never happen. But at some point with this last bout of massive entitlements, you're either going to get rampant inflation or default. Like at some point in the future, either Social Security recipients won't get a check or they will get a check, but it won't matter because you'll get your $4,000 a month and it will pay for a loaf of bread. So is there a similar breaking point that could happen? I mean, the EU went through that crisis. Well, well, clearly there is. Clearly there is crisis. Uh, I mean, and history teaches you that uh, uh, crisis uh, of this magnitude normally uh, get a reset uh, by one uh, of three means, war, bankruptcy, or invasion. Take Greece as an example. Greece was first bailout after bankruptcy, then kind of invaded by China that has taken over their strategic infrastructure, such as the Boreas port, yeah. and partly by Germany, right? That basically controls most of the former government-owned assets that have been transferred to Germany in uh, compensation for the restructuring, restructuring of public debt. Now, uh, I don't mean to um, predicate a war, uh, but I suppose that uh, with public spending uh, growing so rapidly, and in some countries such as Italy, you have already reached 160% of the GDP, 67% of the GDP is public spending, mm -hmm. unemployment is steady at 13%, um, uh, aging against a secular trend of an aging population, so clearly, I mean, you need um, uh, a reset. Uh, ruling out a war, that reset can only come from uh, a, a bankruptcy. So I think that economic restructuring will be uh, the wake up call for most of uh, the European countries that are leaving uh, on cuckoo land. Wow. Well, I appreciate that. So uh, kind of in closing, what would be the most important thing you're seeing that is that is happening in global markets that is still possible to go either way or leaving aside the stuff that is just impossible to change right um, you're not going to stop Sweden or Italy from being socialist leaning but are there things right now that are in your mind kind of still politically up for grabs where if we if we fight hard enough on the side of kind of rational thought free markets that we can still win some of those battles. Is there any, anything that falls into that category for you? Where there's yeah, something yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. Two words. Word number one, inflation. Word number two, China. So on inflation, people need to come to terms with the uh, uh, harsh reality that a supply side induced inflation can only be fought with high uh, interest rates. So a uh, hawkish. Uh, monetary policy, I believe, is necessary to rein in 
these uh, shadow tax that wipes off uh, individual wealth. And second is China. Um, the democratic administration led by Bill Clinton made um, the uh, unforgivable mistake of prematurely admitting China into WTO. Amen. Based on one of those uh, periodic uh, delusions uh, of the global left. I mean, you expose China to democracy, hence, uh, to free market, hence democracy will follow. Well, no. No. Nope. No, because now they uh, have ignited state capitalism, uh, which creates a power asymmetry that's very difficult to reverse because it gives China a massive competitive advantage, and no one sane of mind will give up that competitive advantage without. Um, a mechanism of coercion. Um, right. And you're seeing the first uh, signals of this in, in Taiwan. So uh, I think once uh, the people uh, in Europe will realize that China is a clear and danger and dangerous present danger right at the door gate, perhaps there may be yet uh, another wake up call that will make, uh, right, that will probably uh, be capable of bringing about much needed change. Mm. Well, with that, um, that's, that's uh, one of the best definitions I've ever yet heard of someone who's intelligent is someone who agrees with you. So we'll officially dub you a messy times genius laureate. <laughs> We're very focused on those same issues. I'm very grateful <laughs> and I expect the sheepskin. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll come right up. We don't believe. And thank you. Talk about tradition. Paper decays and falls apart. The only thing to trust in this world is vellum. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Uh, until next time, uh, we wish you uh, luck in your endeavors. And if you indeed emigrate to the US, we'll, we'll do this live here and in person. So thanks Likewise, a lot. it's been great to see you and talk soon.